If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 17, and you can stand while I read 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he went, and so he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please give me a piece of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for my, me and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward you may have one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. I'll pray. Lord, we again just are so thankful for all that you are to us and all that you have given us in Jesus. Thank you that our sins are forgiven and that we've been given right standing with you. Thank you for your very life, God, that indwells us to empower us. Thank you, God, for your wisdom that leads us and guides us. Truly, you are our provision, our bread, and you have met every need for us in Jesus Christ. We want to hear of him, Lord, again, and just have our hearts yielded to him for your name's sake and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. Um, on the calendar for today, Jerry Benjamin, who teaches at His Hill, and he comes here each year in the fall to preach. He was supposed to be here today, but he couldn't come, and he has written a letter to us. So I will read this. Dearest precious saints, greetings and blessings in the matchless and precious name of our risen, living, and indwelling Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been so looking forward to and anticipating being back at Bernie Bible Church this fall, teaching the Word of God in order to know the person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, more intimately, experiencing oneness in our relationship with Him. But because of a medical emergency, it is with great sadness and deep disappointment that I was not able to come. I have been experiencing a major health scare, having been in the hospital, the ICU, for a week with, cha with challenges. Very weak and very tired all the time, tiring easily with very little exertion. 
The simplest task become a major project. Home health care began this past week, which includes physical therapy as well as occupational therapy. Both the physical and occupational therapist said that I am improving. Also, I saw the neurologist this past week. Thankfully, um, no long-term underlying issues or paralysis, but still wants to run more tests, CT scans, to make sure the brain bleed has stopped and that the blood, has, dry blood, is being absorbed. Hence, the doctor wants me to stay close to home. Although there was no permanent damage from the brain bleed that caused a minor stroke, it seems that it will be a long road to full recovery and returning to normal, whatever that was. I always thought that growing old was going to take a lot longer. <laughs> Thank you for praying. The Lord's, this Lord's Day is a first for me. In the over 40 years of traveling itinerant Bible teaching ministry, I have never had to cancel due to health, weather, or flight delays from being at the location of the scheduled ministry. I guess that I am now part of the canceled culture. I pray and trust that this Lord's Day will be an abundant blessing, learning more about our rich relationship with the preeminent one, our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank the Lord every day for the precious truth of Philippians 4.13. I can trust in the Lord in all things, for He is my strength. Love and greetings to all. Jerry Benjamin. <clears throat> in here in 1 Kings 17, we introduced last week the life of Elijah. A man just comes on the scene from nowhere. And he is a nobody from nowhere. He has um, great boldness and confidence, but all that he has to back him up and all that he needs is simply the Word of God. He's never seen a miracle, and he's living in the darkest days of Israel's history. Evil is running rampant. There is a man on the throne, Ahab, who is unrestrained in his evil ambitions. His wife Jezebel, that's motivating and inspiring him. Um, and the, the, the nation is truly turning away from God and towards Satan. And in that context, Elijah realizes that God is nonetheless still at work, as he always is. As dark as the times may be, God is still at work. I remember sitting with Ian Thomas um, one time, and, and, um, and he told me, things are never as bad as they seem, nor are they ever as good as they seem. The truth is always somewhere in the middle. But things were very dark, and yet in the midst of this dark time, down in the city of Jericho, this guy named Hael had rebuilt the city, and in doing so, fulfilled a prophecy not a good prophecy, but a prophecy that Joshua had pronounced over the city, saying that the one who rebuilt the city, his oldest son, would die, and his youngest son would die when he finished the job. And that happened in the days of Ahab. I believe that must have inspired Elijah's faith to realize that God is still at work even in these dark days. And he knew that if God were fulfilling such a minor prophecy in Scripture, certainly he is still committed to a covenant that he has made with the entire nation, what we call the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 28. And so having nothing other than God's word, he stands before this man who was killing people for naming the name of God and said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, it shall not 
rain, neither do until I say so. He did that in obedience to God, and interestingly, it wasn't until after he had obeyed God that in verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, go hide yourself by the brook Cherith. There are so many times we don't know what the next step is. Um, whether whatever stage of life that we're in. But I can remember as, as, a, as a young man in my 20s, really often asking God, what is the next step? What should I do this summer? What should I do this fall? Um, what, even what classes should I take? But I know that, that many times I've seen, and you've probably seen this as well, that God does not tell us what the next step is until we have finished what He has given us to do. And that, we don't like that because we'd like to know six months in advance, six years would be nice, but we'd always like to know what the next step is before we even get to the next step. But God says, I don't owe you an explanation. You're the servant, I am the master, obey me and trust me. And when you need to know, and usually that's much later than we think we need to know, but when we need to know, God is always faithful to direct our steps. And he does that here with Elijah. And so after he has obeyed God to confront Ahab, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go hide yourself by the brook Cherith. And then he says, And it shall come about that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So if you want to be provided for, that's the place. So you're not free to choose where to go. I'm telling you, go to the Brook Cherith, and at the Brook Cherith, where there is no H-E-B, there is no grocery store of any kind, there's not any people living around, it doesn't make sense to you, I know, Elijah, but there is where I will provide for you. You can go somewhere else, but you're not going to have the same promise of my provision. Go to the Brook and hide yourself. Now this drought will last three and a half years. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he stays at the brook. He's only at two places the whole time, the brook Cherith and in the land of Zarephath with a widow. So we don't know how long he was at either place. Combined, three and a half years. Split it down the middle, and that's a year and nine months. So that's like a whole nine months of being at his hill, staying for summer, and then coming back for second year half the time that Elijah experienced this drought. And during this, again, year and nine months, we're estimating, at the brook, nothing happened. He doesn't preach a single sermon. He doesn't see a single person come to faith. No one comes and meets with Elijah. Elijah's not writing a book. Nothing. And yet he is exactly where God wants him to be. Now, if you're tempted, as I am, and I think all of us are, to measure your life by what God is doing, or to measure your life by what you are accomplishing, or even what God is accomplishing through you, then you're going to have a real hard time with being put down at a brook for a year or nine months, and nothing is happening. You're not witnessing, you're not sharing your faith, you're not discipling, you're not writing books, nothing 
somebody says to you, what can, report can you give at missionary moment for how our money is being used? And you go, nothing. Maybe you're wasting your money. You know, I'm, I know I'm where I'm supposed to be, but it doesn't make any sense because I can't point to a single thing that God is doing through me at this time. You ever feel that way? Mrs. Ian Thomas, Joan Thomas, used to tell the story to us in Torchbearers how for many years, behind the scenes, she basically ran Capenary Hall in England. She was the cook. She was the bottle scrubber. She was the floor mopper. She was the one that tended to the students' health needs. She didn't get any glory and saw no ministry really taking place. No one would ever come to her and say, Mrs. Thomas, I have a question that only you could help me with. She never had that. Everybody else was leading the Bible studies. Everybody else had the joy of seeing people grow in their faith. Mrs. Thomas was behind the scenes working like a slave. And she said after years, a student came to her one morning and said, Mrs. Thomas, I would like to, to visit with you. And she thought, oh, glory, this is the day. This is the day when I get to be used by God. And she's, every moment, free moment she had during the day, which wasn't much, she pulled out her Bible and was praying and looking at her word and just thinking, you know, what would God have her to share with this young woman? And finally, at the end of the day, knock, 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 the girl comes to her, her apartment door and Mrs. Thomas invites her in and she's ready to sit down with her and have a nice cup of tea and a Bible study with her. And the, lady, and the girl said, you know, I, my stomach's just been kind of messed up, and I just wonder if you have any Pepto-Bismol, you know. And she goes, there you go. You know, and she was so deflated. But the Lord so used that in her life. Life, and this is hard, but life is not about what God is doing with us. I mean, if there were one lesson that we could learn in our lives is there something more important in life than what God is doing with us? It is what God is doing in us. God himself is more important than what God is doing through us. And if he never ever does anything with us, he just puts us at a brook and never uses us, but we're growing in our relationship with him, and God is becoming bigger while we become smaller, that is something we will never regret. What God does with us is God's business. It is truly not our life. The greatest gift and blessing in life is Jesus himself. To have Jesus is to have life. It's not to have Jesus and be used is to have life. It's simply having Jesus is our life. And so nothing is happening through Elijah at this time. Birds show up twice a day, breakfast and supper, ravens, arr, arr, breakfast. <laughs> See you later. Arr, arr, supper. <laughs> we don't even know what they're bringing. At least meat is on the menu. Bread and meat, twice a day. Arr. See you tomorrow. Every day for a year and nine months. Ravens, ravens, I mean... Couldn't you even at least vary the birds? 
I mean, it's just the same routine, day after day after day. And day after day, the brook got a little drier. But God never told him to move. Nothing is happening through him. But I have to think that it is in this time of isolation that Elijah is learning we don't just live off principles. You see, it was the principle that God is still committed to his covenant that motivated him to stand before Ahab and says, as the Lord God lives, it shall not rain. The principle, the truism. But now this is not about principles. This is about the person. And he is put into isolation with the person of God. And God is meeting every need. He's protecting him and he's providing for him the two basic needs that we all have as human beings, protection and provision. God is doing that and he's learning God is the source of my protection and my provision. He doesn't need me to protect me and provide for me. But more important than that, because that still gets to a principle. The principle, God is my protector, God is my provider. But more important than that is the person behind the principle. And he's got no one to talk to. Some of us can't go more than a day without talking to somebody. Can't go more than a few minutes without texting somebody. I mean, you think we're breaking students' arms sometimes to have them turn their phones in during class. I remember one year a student on his own, he said, I think we should have a technology-free day, technology-free Tuesdays, I think they were. I thought he was going to be lynched. I mean, just, what? Wouldn't go without our phones for a whole day? Man, how fanatical can that be? But to go one day with no technology, just silence, oh my. Two days, a week, a month, a year, either you lose your mind during that isolation and that silence or you learn to talk to God. What do you think happened with Elijah in this long extended period where there is no productivity, nothing being accomplished, and he is in pure isolation, I think this developed his relationship with the person of God. He's not, being, he's not living from principles anymore. Because this is a, he doesn't know. Maybe he's going to be there for the rest of his life. He doesn't know. This is where God has put him, and this is where he will stay. But in it, his heart is being drawn after God's and he is growing to know that he is nothing. But God is the all in all. He is small and God is big. Finally, after who knows how long, verse 7, it came about after a while, a long while, that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And Elijah said, now I get to move, praise God. And he packed up his meager belongings and, and he's just started running for he didn't know where, but anywhere away from this miserable brook. Is that what the text says? No. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise and go. Many times when I'm in a classroom setting teaching this, I'll ask the students, 
Why did Elijah leave the brook? And I, I'm, I'm, I know what the answer is going to be. And most of the time, the, the most common answer is he left the brook because the brook went dry. No, that is not why. He left the brook because the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go. See, Elijah had learned that if God can bring me bread and meat by birds, he can surely bring me water. Probably hoping that wasn't going to be by the birds, you know, burping, burping up water. I mean, that would have been pertinent. But if God brought water to Israel in the wilderness by Moses hitting a rock, certainly God could bring water to this man at this dry brook. He didn't leave because the brook went dry. Second powerful lesson to learn. First one is that it's about God. It's not about principles. It's about the person of Jesus Christ in our context. But the second here is that when God sends you, stay put until God moves you. Do not leave because of the circumstances. There's a, one, we leave because circumstances go bad or we leave because God said leave. And the thing is, we typically don't stay when the circumstances are bad. We have so many options available to us. I can just get out of this marriage, find somebody else. I can just quit this job, find another job. Everybody's hiring. There's for hiring signs everywhere. Sooner or later, God is going to put you, if that is your life habit of leaving every time the brook goes dry. Sooner or later, and I'm no prophet, we're the son of a prophet, but sooner or later, God is going to put you at a brook that you cannot leave. It might be physical health. It might be something else where you simply cannot escape. It's there that we truly grow. Because once again, we are forced to turn to God to sustain us in circumstances where the life is being sucked out of us. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we exalt in our tribulations. Maybe read, read, we exalt in our dry brooks. Because tribulation, dry brooks, produce perseverance. And perseverance, proving character. And proving character, a hope that does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. My mom used to push us all the time as kids, learn character, learn character. Hard work produces character. And she was right. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I knew mom and dad are always right. At least, at least they told us that. First job I took, I mean, I mowed lawns the time I was just little. In fact, I was so little, and I would, I would go to people's homes and ask if I could mow their lawns. You know, can, this next Saturday, can I mow your lawn? And sometimes people would say yes. A lot of times they said no. I remember one lady, she said yes, but then she must have thought that I was just too small to mow her lawn. And so by the time I got there the next Saturday, she, early in the morning, she had another lawn crew out there, kids mowing her lawn. And I had pushed my lawnmower all the way over to her house and dragged the edger behind and everything. And 
But I, you know, I was, when I, people did hire me, I made good money. But you know, that wasn't a real job. Real job was when you worked for somebody else for minimum wage. And so <laughs> even though I was making twice minimum wage by mowing lawns, but real job, worked for somebody else. Crazy. And so I got a job. My dad arranged for a friend of his that was a contractor to hire me. And I was just a 16-year-old working for minimum wage, didn't know anything. And um, I, would, I was staying out late at night, um, getting back at midnight. My dad always said, nothing good happens after midnight, so get in at midnight. And then I'd leave the house at about 6 in the morning to go to, the, to work, and I, I couldn't manage it. Six hours sleep, and I need a nap, and you're not being paid to get a nap. But I was running, you know, I was looking for a place to hide in the afternoon so I could go get my 10 or 15 minute nap. End of the summer, I stood in that man's office and thanked him for hiring me. And my eyes were tearing up and my lips were quivering as I thanked him for hiring me because I felt so ashamed and guilty. I knew that I had spent my summer robbing that man. Only 10 or 15 minutes a day. But I felt like I was robbing him. I was, not, I was not working as unto the Lord. I was being irresponsible with my time, and that man was suffering because of it. And I got in my car and drove home, and I said to the Lord through the tears, God, I never want to feel this way again. If you ever let me have a job again, I want to be able to look at that paycheck and say I worked for every penny on that paycheck. The Lord has a way of taking you at his word. <laughs> Next summer, recession is going on, and I looked everywhere in Corpus for a job. No one was hiring. And so I said, okay, God, school's going to be over soon, and I've looked everywhere I can think of to find a job, and I'm just, you're going to have to do it. And if you don't give me a job, I'm just going to assume that I can spend the summer on the beach. I was looking forward to that. That Sunday night, a man called me that I'd never heard of, never met, and he said, I heard you're looking for a job. <laughs> How did that happen? And, and I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, here's the address. Show up tomorrow. Be there at 7 in the morning. So this was a construction job putting up metal buildings. And so my first day on the job, the superintendent pops open his briefcase. He's going to give me the forms to fill out. And he's got a massive pistol that takes up his whole briefcase. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, where have I just hired on? To? And he sees me, big bug-eyed, looking at this massive pistol, and he goes, Charlie, these men are dangerous men. I have this pistol to protect myself from them, and I fully expect one day I will have to use it. You should watch yourself while you're here this summer. And I never told my dad what was going on that summer. But there were times when they put me in situations where they thought I would die. There was one, one foreman who he was so mad at me one day, he told me to get in the truck with him and drive back to the shop. And the other, one other man working with us that day, um, just the three of us, and he, he saw what was going to happen. And he lied to him and said, no, I need Charlie to stay here with me to help fix the mess he's made. And so the guy let me stay. 
In the end of the day, when the three of us got back in the cab of that, of that truck, my foreman said, had you gotten in the truck today when I told you, I would have killed you. That was a whole summer like that. I knew I couldn't quit. God had put me. And I said, Lord, this is where you've placed me. I thank you for it, and I'm trusting you to protect me. There were three other guys that hired on when I did. All of them were football players. One of them played um, for Texas A&M, and they all quit. And I stayed. And at the end of the summer, my last day there, I pulled on to the job site, and this foreman that hated me and wanted to kill me is driving off as fast as he can go. And as I came up to the men that I was working with, they said, oh, man, Charlie, you just missed it. I said, what? They said, you know that pistol the, brief, the, the superintendent keeps in his briefcase? Yeah. So he pulled it out today. And he, he pointed it on that guy and said, get off the property right now. He got fired. And the same day, because my last day there, the superintendent walked over to me and said, Charlie, you've got a job here anytime you want one. Only God could do that. But I was learning character. Well, that's a lesson learned, right? Next job. <laughs> that fall, I get hired on to work at Hygea, which was a dairy company in South Texas. I got the job through an uncle who worked for them down in Harlingen. And so I was just going to be a maintenance helper. Every day after school, it's my senior year in high school for three hours and all day on Saturday. And I show up and they say, you see that sidewalk out there, Charlie? Ran the whole length of the plant. It's about 300 yards long. And it had never been edged, never been trimmed. The grass is growing all the way out to the middle of the sidewalk and on the street side out into the street. Go trim that. Okay, got an edger? No, we got a shovel. And so every day after school for three hours, I would trim that sidewalk, both sides and the street. Took me, I don't know, two or three weeks every day out there doing that. And I would sweep up at the end of the day, put all my trimmings in the garbage, dump it in the dumpster, wash off my shovel, put it back where it's supposed to be. All because it was God's sidewalk. Miserable job. But I said, Lord, it's your sidewalk. And I want to trim this sidewalk to your glory. And whatever you want to accomplish in me, great. But nothing's being accomplished through me. <laughs> I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not building any relationships. I'm just out there in the hot sun, 100 degree weather out there, just working for three hours. Figured any kid ought to be able to work three hours in the sun without a break. And I would work my three hours and then go clean up my tools and go home. Little did I know that all the men in the plant were watching. And they're going, where did that kid come from? Amazing. So I finished that job, and they graduated me to mowing. And they put me on a lawnmower, which broke. No problem, Charlie. Do you know what a yo-yo is? And I'm thinking one of these things. Oh, no, no, no. A yo-yo. It's a swing blade. You just yo-yo back and forth. <laughs> and they gave me a yo-yo stick. A swing blade. And they said, this is your new mower. Get to know it. And so I mowed that whole front of that plant with a swing blade. Johnson grass that was three and four feet tall out there in the ditch. And I'm out there just whacking it down. 
I got to where I could make that place look like a golf course. <laughs> so then they graduated me to digging a hole. <laughs> and they said, don't break the, the pipe, clay pipe, 10-inch clay pipe. It's full of sour milk. Don't want to break that. Because if you do, it's going to be it. So the guy I was working with, what did he do? He broke the pipe. We were only a foot down. The hole had to be eight feet. That guy quit. Never saw him again. So every day, for months, I have to go and scoop five-gallon buckets of sour milk out of this hole, kill all the mosquitoes that were in there, jump in, and start digging where I'd left off the day before. I smelled so bad, my mom wouldn't let me go in the house. I had to strip down out in the garage before I could come in the house. I don't like milk. I especially don't like sour milk. <laughs> All of this, what God's doing in me, it's not what he's doing with me. And I'm learning of my God. He's not a God who's punishing me. He's a God who's drawing me after himself, who's no, who knows that I need character. And there is only one way to get character. There are no shortcuts, and that is through perseverance. And there is only one way to get perseverance, and that is through trial. And so when mom's home praying, God, give my kids character, she's really praying, make it hard for them. There's no other way around this. I mean, I, as a Christian, we all are guilty of saying, Jesus, produce your character in me. Because we want that. That's part of having his nature in us. We want to be like him. We want people to see Jesus when they look at us. We, when the pressure comes, we want Jesus to come out. And so we go, Jesus, let people see you and me. And Jesus goes, you have no idea what you're praying for. <laughs> and he goes, I'm more than willing to take you up on it. <laughs> oh, you don't know. And so we go, character, Jesus goes, I'm all in, man. Well, let's do some character. But you've got to have some trials. And you've got to learn to persevere. And then the character of Christ begins to be formed in us. And it doesn't ever stop. It just continues. And you think those trials are done, God brings you some more. And you think those are done, and then he brings you some more that you never thought of before. But in all of it, God is bringing us into conformity to Jesus. And it's good. And there's no regrets. When he goes to this widow, it's my great-grandniece, great there's that's good, that's good. Great news, yeah. She, I wanted to teach her how to say amen, but, you know. <laughs> when God sends him to Zarephath, interesting thing about Zarephath, where's Zarephath? It's in the land of Sidon. Well, what is significant about that? That's where Jezebel is from. Huh. <laughs> and so God says, you know who's looking for you, scouring the earth to find you, well, she can't find you here, but it's time to move. And, so I'm, and you've been wanting some other relationships besides just me. So why don't we, we're going to send you to a city, to a widow in Zarephath of Sidon, where Jezebel is from. 
And even there, God can provide for him and protect him. And so no questions, no hesitancy, he arose and he went. And when he came to the gate of the city, there's a widow out there gathering sticks. I don't know how he knew she was a widow. I guess she had a sign all around her neck, widow. And, and so he walks up and says, I need some water. And she goes, okay, I'll go, I'll go get you some. They must have had a well that was still functioning there in the city. And as she went to get it, he said, I'm also kind of hungry. Could you bring me some food? Just a piece of bread? Well, that stopped her. As the Lord your God lives, so he must have had a sign on that say, said, you know, prophet, I don't know. I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. What a happy woman. <laughs> Lord, this is the woman? <laughs> She's going to provide for me? She can't even provide for herself. This is the one? But he never doubts it. Amazing what God has done in Elijah. The outward circumstance doesn't change the reality of who God is and what God is able to do. Does God actually need a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour? No, he's God. And so even though in this woman's eyes she has no provision for, to feed another mouth, Elijah must, I think, just been kind of smiling and goes, not a problem. But... You need to feed me first. <laughs> Who are you? Can you imagine? Somebody just shows up in the day of your destitution. This is the last meal on earth that you have. And this nobody shows up and says, just feed me first. And you'll have plenty of food for the rest of this drought. Now, at this juncture, at this day, to give Elijah anything is to give Elijah everything, right? Had Elijah appeared the day before, she could have split it in half and still had food for herself and her son for that day. But he didn't come the day before. He came the day when to give him anything is to give him everything. No coincidences with God. What is her everything? A little oil, a little flour, but it's everything. That is her wealth, but her wealth, her everything is nothing to God. God says to you and me, I've already purchased you. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And I am asking you every day, Take your hands off of your life and hand your little bit of nothing over to me. But it doesn't feel like nothing, does it? What, what, what's going to happen if I just say, God, it's your life and it's in your hands? Me, me, you know, I remember Bob Hobson used to be with Torchbearers for many years and just, just a stand-up comedian. And, and he said, man, God pushed me in this corner of just hand your life over to me. And I said, God, what do I do if I hand my life over to me? You'll have me marry an ugly woman and marry and go and move to Africa. And as he was saying that, his wife is sitting in the audience and he says, Nina, stand up. And everybody's going, <laughs> and she was a beautiful woman. But I think, oh my. He wanted everybody to see God did not have him marry an ugly woman, but it didn't come out that way. We were all laughing.
Maybe God would ruin our lives by human standards. If we just say, it's yours, God. I don't care where I go, what I do, if I get married, if I have children, it's not my business. You're saying, as God, hand over your little bit of oil and your little bit of flour, as crummy as it is, give it to me. Like he needs it. He doesn't. But he says, give it all. And maybe our life will not go as we wanted it to go. But I know in my heart, I know in my experience, there are never any regrets with saying yes to the will of God. Never. The will of God is what? Good, acceptable, perfect. How can you regret taking your hands off of your life and handing over your little bit of oil and flour to the omnipotent, all-sufficient God when His will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. You will never regret, never regret saying it's yours, God. But if we hoard it, I mean, you talk about, really? What, what are you exchanging your little bit of oil and flour for? Nothing. To keep it is, to, is nothing. To hand it over is everything. But it is such a crisis of faith that we all go through when we're hitting these things and we realize what God is saying, give it to me. And he may not send you to bongo bongo land. But if he does, so be it. But many times it's just God just saying, we need to get it back to the basics here. That nothing comes between me and you. Nothing. Not even your pitiful little bit of oil and flour. Give it to me. And let me sustain you. And provide for you. And this woman in faith does exactly that. And just as Elijah said, for every day that he is with her, twice a day there's a little bit of fl more flour, in the, um, bread in the, in the morning, and a little bit more in the evening. It doesn't say that there was any yeast. It doesn't say there was any salt, butter, or jam. Just oil and flour. I'm no baker, but I know that when you put oil and flour together and mix them up and put them in an oven, you get a tortilla. <laughs> you don't get a birthday cake. You, you don't get a big sliced loaf of bread. You get a tortilla. And this tortilla is a miracle every single day. Miracle after miracle, twice a day. No meat. When he was at that crummy brook with the ravens, he got meat. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. <laughs> Who wrote that song? <laughs> That's not true. Mrs., this is going downhill. The cruise has docked. Okay, he's not getting the meaning. He went back to normal here. Bread. And not very good bread, just tortillas. But every tortilla is a miracle from God. What does that tell us about miracles? Miracles are not always sensational. They are not always spectacular. But they're always from God. They're always supernatural. We have lived supernatural lives in that every single day of our lives we have experienced 
bread. Every single day, more importantly, we experience Jesus, the bread of life. What a miracle. And see, God is doing all this, not just for the widow, but he's also doing this again for Elijah. Because it's going to become very important in Elijah's life as we go on for Elijah to not forget the most important thing in life is God because we so often treat God like flour tortillas. Because after all, we have his presence every day. But we want more than his presence. We want the sensational. We want the spectacular. And we treat God like flour tortillas. This is all here for a reason for Elijah. It's going to become very important as we get a little further into his life. Next Sunday, we'll finish this chapter. And it's a hard finish. This widow is going to lose her son. And her immediate response to her, the death of her son is, You have come here to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. After a year and a half of two miracles a day, the moment her son dies, she blames God. We are very, very like her. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you that you are our wealth. You are our good. We could never have anything more than you, and we need never have anything less. You are so much more, God, than our all. Our all is nothing more than flour tortillas, God. It's just little oil in a little flour. And you, God, are the King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray, God, that we, like Elijah, would allow you to put us down at a dry brook and learn of you. Grow in our confidence, God, of who you are, that you are the provider, the protector, that you are our friend, the one with whom we can fellowship, share our hearts, and hear yours, God, and be in complete isolation and never be more sane and sound than when we are alone, God, with you. Thank you, God, for your ways. They are not ours, but I pray that they would become ours. And that as you work in our lives, that we would see your hand and we would recognize the greatest gift is simply yourself. And that we would not become a defeated and discouraged people because we don't see you doing in us and through us, God, what we desire. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for your loving presence each and every day. In Christ's name, amen.